Okay, good morning. Okay, I'm just going to talk about the elephant in the room. My wireless mic is broken, so I have to carry, use the game show host mic. I just feel like saying, and the survey says. But anyway, we're continuing our book of Matthew. Um, we've been in the book of Matthew a long time, uh, pushing two years now. And uh, we're down to the last few chapters, but there's a lot here, so uh, we'll be in here for quite a while longer. Uh, but just to catch you up, last week uh, we discussed some events that happened right around the arrest of Jesus. Now, uh, we discussed how when Jesus was arrested, Peter decided to keep a safe distance. He followed behind him, but at a distance, right? And we found out that that wasn't the best idea because there's no such thing as a safe distance from Christ. And he was weakened by that distance, and he ended up denying uh, Christ three times, twice to little servant girls. So we see that we're really weakened the farther we were from Christ. Now, uh, this week we're going to be discussing the final phase of the trial of Jesus. Okay, so uh, there's going to be this reoccurring theme you're going to see throughout this message today. And that theme is silence. Because when, when someone reads about the trial of Jesus, there's one thing that just stands out and you can't help but notice it. And that's the fact that he's so silent. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't even try to defend himself. And that's so hard for us. I mean, it's hard for us as people to imagine not defending ourselves when we're falsely accused. As a matter of fact, I mean, if, we, if there's even a hint that we think someone is thinking we did something we didn't, don't we automatically get defensive and start saying stuff? I mean, can you imagine if this trial could cost you your life? And yet, that was exactly the case with Jesus, yet he was completely silent. And this is one of those many sacrifices that he made that we don't talk about enough uh, on his way to the cross. Because listen, being all God and all man, as Jesus was, at any moment, he could have put an end to this trial. At any minute, he could have waved his hand and his accusers would have been gone. He had that kind of power, yet he chose to just be silent. He could have worked miracles in front of them and proved that he was God and, and proved he was innocent. Yet, he remained silent. Right? I mean, Jesus knew the law more intricately than anyone there, and he could have picked out all the flaws in his trial and all the things they did wrong to bring him there. He could have been the perfect attorney, but he chose just to stay silent. And the reason he stayed silent was because he loved us that much. He knew this had to happen. He knew that this had to happen in order for the world to have eternal life, so he knew it was time for him just to silently trust God to accomplish his will. Right now, today, the title is Silence of the Lamb of God. And my wife's like, don't call it that. <laughs> and I'm like, listen, they're going to remember it because it's cheesy. You know, they're going to remember that title. But anyway, so the title is The Silence of the Lamb of God. Now, one thing I want you to remember as we go through this Jesus suffered silently so that the message of grace would never be silenced. And I think it's important we remember that. Okay, let's jump into today's message. Matthew 27, verse 11. If I start talking with my hand too much and lose the mic, somebody give me a signal or something. This might shock you, but I talk with my hands. As I say it, I'm talking with my hands. Matthew 27, 11. It says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. 
So we begin here today with Jesus before Pilate. And Pilate was just the Roman governor of Judea, and he served from 26 A.D. to 36 A.D., or 36 A.D. to 26 A.D. as it was. But, um, and Jesus was brought for him, before him, and the charge was pretty interesting. They got a little creative in what they brought him before Pilate in. They brought him before Pilate charged with sedition against Rome. That was the actual official charge. And sedition is defined as conduct or speech inciting people to rebel against the authority of a state or a monarch. Okay, and at that time, sedition was a death penalty offense in Rome. Anyone caught in sedition was automatically put to death, right? And the reason was at that time, there was a lot of people who didn't like being under Roman rule. They were harsh rulers. So a lot of people had tried sedition, had tried to, you know, to start, you know, revolts and coups, uh, and they were all put down quickly because of the size of that Roman army. So here's what the Jews are thinking. The Jews are thinking, what's the most serious thing we can charge him with that the Romans won't just throw out? Because if we tell them we just don't like the fact that he says he's God and he's the Messiah, they're going to say, so what? We've got to come up with something that will stick. And they're like, I know, we'll, we'll accuse him of, of trying you know, to, to overthrow Rome. We'll, we'll accuse him of sedition, and they'll take that seriously. And the Jews knew that not only would the Romans take that charge really seriously, they knew that when he was found guilty, he'd be put to death, and that meant being publicly crucified. And they knew that's what it meant. See, the Romans were very cruel rulers. And what they liked to do was make public examples of anybody who was trying to have sedition against Rome. Anybody who was trying to bring an uprising against Rome, they wanted to make a public example out of them so that any would-be seditionists would see that and go, man, I'm not going to start anything against Rome. And here's some of the things they did. They used a lot of different, you know, really brutal forms uh, of public execution before they got to crucifixion. And let me tell you some of those. They used to boil people alive in oil. Can you imagine? Has anybody here ever spilled a little oil on them? Like, I know this always happens when I'm frying eggs. Has anybody else that ever happened to you when you're frying eggs? little note to self, don't do that with your shirt off. I'm not going to explain that. Anyway, but oil, I mean, boiling them in oil. Another thing they would do is burn people alive. Light them on fire and burn them to death. How many people are familiar with the name Nero? He was a ruler uh, in Rome who was very, very cruel, and he, would, he was known for taking Christians and using them as garden torches and burning them alive. So that was one of the things they would use. A couple others where they would do, they would strangle people alive, you don't want to know, um, and they would stone them, which means throw rocks at them until they die. Those were some of the things they did up until crucifixion. But they decided to settle on crucifixion because they thought it had that lingering suffering quality that would really scare people. And that's literally why they made that decision. Because people who are being crucified, it's such a brutal death, and we'll go over that a lot more as we get closer to the crucifixion. But these people would literally be asphyxiating. Their lungs would be filling up. They're going through the most, the most painful turmoil you can even imagine. And sometimes they could suffer for days only to have their legs broken to finish them off. So they thought, you know what, if anybody was thinking about sedition, when they walk by and see these people being crucified, they will change their mind, right? Because they're really, the Roman government was really the only one that practiced crucifixion, but realized before Jesus, they'd probably already done this thousands of times. So they were really, really, if this is possible, they were really good at it, right? So they, would, they had done this forever, and they were really, really brutal and good at it. So if Jesus were found guilty, 
he would certainly be crucified. Now, just to make you understand, this is like your last appeal in our appellate court for Jesus. Okay? This is his last and best chance to defend himself. After this, there's no one else. After this, he was going to have a sentence cast upon him. It was going to happen after this. This was his last chance. So the way he responds to a lot of Pilate's questions seem kind of odd or confusing. But let's take a look at this. Well, let me, let me skip past that for a second. Because here, listen, the first thing I think we've got to notice about what Pilate already said was Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? Now understand, the reason he asked that question was a dig at the Jews. Is the reason he even asked that question. It also tells us that Pilate knew they really weren't bringing him with accurate charges. He had heard about how they didn't like the fact that he had claimed to be the Messiah and how they didn't like the fact that people were calling him the Son of God. He knew why they were bringing him there. But since they made the charge of sedition, he had to take it serious. So the first thing he asked him has nothing to do with sedition. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Can you imagine what would happen as soon as he answered this with that crowd of Jews around him? Right? Because Jesus said, it is as you say. Now, in our English or in modern English, that would mean, yes, you're correct. I am. That's what that would mean. Imagine what the crowd did as soon as he said that. And you'll find this is the only words he speaks. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, yeah, I am. You've spoken correctly. Can you imagine the crowd just going absolutely crazy when he said that? Because here's the thing. This admission was really a crime to the Jews. Under Jewish law, claiming to be the Son of God or the Messiah or be God was a death penalty offense. So this was against the law for the Jews. But this wasn't against the law for the Romans. They could care less. If this would have been the only charge, as I said earlier, they would have said, so what? He claims to be God. Deal with it. That has nothing to do with us. But he just wanted to get that out in the open. He was kind of picking at him a little bit here, right? Because Pilate knew, we'll see in verse 18, he knew they were just bringing him there because they were jealous, right? And so despite the seriousness of this charge, Jesus still refused to defend himself. He wouldn't even make a case. And then Pilate tells him, hey, let's be honest here. I don't think you understand the gravity of the situation. What they're charging you with, what they're accusing you of, is very, very serious. And if you don't make a good defense, I have to sentence you to death. Do you know what kind of death that is? This isn't, this isn't something you blow off. You really need to make a defense. That's basically what, what Pilate was trying to say to him. But he still made absolutely no defense. And the reason he didn't make a defense, because he trusted God's will and God's plan. He trusted that. He wasn't going to make a defense. And that calm silence that Jesus displayed, I mean, in the face of certain death, really impressed Pilate. Pilate was impressed by that, because he knew that this wasn't the demeanor or the attitude of a guilty man. Guilty people always try to defend themselves. So if you ever defend yourself, I'm just going to think you're guilty. No, I'm just saying, but, you know, guilty people aren't just going to sit there. He was confident, and he was silent, right? There's something to be gained from that. As believers, I think it's important that we learn from that silence that we see in Jesus here. Okay, because most of the time, and let's just be honest, when bad things happen to us, Christians and non-Christians, Christians, when adversity comes, when struggles come, most of the time we say and do too much, don't we? You ever thought about that? When something bad happens, someone says something about you or, says, or starts a rumor that isn't true, 
What do we do? Immediately we go, well, I'm going to talk to him. No way. And you get on the phone and call all your friends. Did you hear what he said about me? That is so wrong. Wait till I catch him. Right? And we talk about it and we get mad and we start thinking, what bad can I say about that person to get that around too? Be honest. Don't we do that? Immediately we start saying and doing too much. And usually we do so much that we make our situation even worse. Because we just usually say a little bit too much. Right? We need to learn to be silent and actually trust God with those struggles and fears. As soon as you hear something, if you're falsely accused, if people are saying bad things about you, if you're in a bad situation, your first action should be give it to God and give him a chance to do something. If you're being unfairly, anybody here ever been unfairly accused of something? Right? Listen, I don't know if you've noticed this, but when somebody accuses you of something that they know is a lie, you're probably not going to be able to defend yourself because it's a lie. You see what I mean? This is what was happening to Jesus, and he says, I'm just going to let God vindicate me. I'm going to trust God in this situation. That's where we struggle. We need to learn that. Now, I can't think of a better example of this than Moses. Now, how many people know the story of Moses bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt? Come on. How many people know that? You guys know this one? Prince of Egypt? See the cartoon? Ben-Hur? Only my dad and Ben know what that is. No, just kidding. But, you know, we should know the story of Moses. So what happens here is, is Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt miraculously with these, with these plagues and these signs and these wonders, and they're traveling in the desert, and at night they have a pillar of fire by God, and at day they have a, a pillar of cloud, so God's hand is reaching down and guiding them every step of the way. It's undeniable that God is moving on their behalf. There's bread falling from heaven called manna, which means... What is it? Right? So there's all these signs that God is with them. But Pharaoh changes his mind. And he sends his army after him. He's like, you know what? I'm not letting those punks go. That's the Chris Mosley version. And he sends his army after him. And they actually catch up to them. And they are backed against the Red Sea. Now think about the situation. To their back is the Red Sea. And to this side is the entire Egyptian army, okay? Probably the largest army in the world at that time. Now listen to what Moses told them right before God parts the Red Sea. Exodus 14, 11. It says, then they said to Moses, now listen to this. Put this in modern times when problems come on you, okay? Then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? That is a real smart aleck thing to say, isn't it? I mean, forgetting all the things God did to set them free up to that point, the problems come on them. Sometimes we do this, don't we? The first thing they do is go, seriously? What, you just found ground cheaper in the desert to bury us in? Were these plots cheaper? You know, first thing they say, right? And then it says, why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? They act like you took us from a vacation resort. They were being held captive they were making bricks 16 12 and 16 hours a day in the hot sun and if they slow down they would beat them some to death they started killing their children i mean they weren't you know in in you know on vacation somewhere in the bahamas they were enslaved and yet they say why did you take us out of egypt verse 12 is this not 
uh, is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They're not giving any thought to everything that's already happened. The plagues, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, God moving every day. How many times have we seen God move in big ways in our life and we just forget about it when something comes upon us again? We forget about everything good he's done and we get mad and say, why is God doing this to me? And we start whining and complaining. And you know you've been there. Forget everything he's done. What's he doing for me now? Nothing. And we get upset. This is what they're doing here. Right? But Moses said to the people, and I love this, he says, do not fear, stand by. That word in the Hebrew actually means be still. Okay? So do not fear, be still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians who you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you what? While you keep silent. Okay, while you keep silent. So Moses is basically saying, just be still, be quiet, and watch God be God. Just let him be God in your life for a second. Give him a chance to amaze you when trials come on you. Give him a chance to do something big in your life when you're struggling, when you're hurting. Give him a chance before you complain and before you whine. Just give him a chance to be God. Trust him to be God. Right? I love this. I mean, basically what he was saying is, for once, would you just shut up and trust God? Now listen, this doesn't have to be a pastor thing. How many of you have ever been talking to someone, you just want to look at them and go, would you shut up and trust God? Everybody's been there, haven't they? Everybody's got that one friend that just whines about everything, and their life really ain't that bad. You know what I mean? And you just wanted to look at them at one time or another and go, oh my gosh, shut up. Pray about it and let God be God, you whiner. And this is what Moses was saying. I just love it. I can't. I just would love to see how quiet it got when that sea started parting. He's like, yeah, that's the God we serve when you learn to be silent and trust him. That's who we serve. You know, most of the time I think the reason people don't experience God powerfully in their life like they did then, because people say, well, why doesn't God do things like that now? He does. He does do things like that. He does amazing things in people's life. I've, I've witnessed people healed of diseases, and I'm not talking about the charlatans on TV slapping people around. I'm talking about God answering someone's prayer and healing them of four-stage cancer. I've seen it. I've witnessed people who are not supposed to walk, walk again. Why? Because they silently trusted God to be God. I've seen that. God will do those miraculous things when we learn to just shut up and let him be God for a minute. You know what I mean? That's where a lot of us struggle. We don't know how to do that. Because a lot of times, we start doubting, we start complaining, and we give up minutes, hours, days before he was about to part the sea for us. But we don't get to experience that. Because we gave in to fear and doubt. I wonder how many times each one of us would have witnessed God parting the sea for us if we had just learned to be silent and trust him. And it, it embarrasses me. I'm not pointing at you. I, I've done the same thing. I wonder how many, I mean, miraculous, powerful things I've missed because like the Israelites, I complained. Not looking at everything he'd already done, I complained rather than just be silent and trust him. 
Let's move on. Matthew 27, 15. It says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Now, every time he says that, understand, that's a dig. He's saying, Jesus, you know, the one that's called the Christ. And you know what they would say? We didn't call him Christ. That means, you know, the anointed one. We didn't call him that. He's going, yeah, uh, this Jesus called the Christ. That was Pilate's way of going, you idiots. You know what? I'm just going to keep bringing that up to take you off because you're lying why you brought him up here. So he says, Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ. For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. So I think it's funny because Pilate was really, really, really trying hard to let Jesus go. Okay, now I'm not saying he was a good man. I'll deal with that in a minute. But he was really trying to let him go. He wanted to let him go. So he thinks, here's what I'm going to do. There's this custom where, you know, I can let them choose one person to set free from jail. And and whoever they choose, I'll let them have it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make this choice so easy that any moron could make it. I'm going to make this a no-brainer. I'm going to set them up to where they have to let Jesus go. That's what I'm going to do. So what's he do? He picks Barabbas. Okay? Don't ever name your kids this. It's not a good Bible name. All right, Barabbas was a murderer, convicted. He was a thief, convicted. And he was an insurrectionist. He had been caught trying to have revolts and stuff against the Roman government. He was actually guilty of the crime they were accusing Jesus of. Now, that wasn't a coincidence. This was Pilate going, hey, morons, I'm making this as easy as I can. He's a murderer. You know it. He's guilty. He's a thief. You know it. He's guilty. And he's an insurrectionist. He's tried to raise people against Rome. He deserves death. Now, do you want the murderer, insurrectionist, all-around thief and pretty bad guy? You want me to let that guy go? Or Jesus? Okay, I mean, he really makes this Simple for them. This should be a no-brainer. He's thinking there is no way they're going to let some jealous grudge of their chief priest, some religious squabble that means nothing, they're not going to let that be more important to them than putting this guy to death, which is exactly what he deserves. But before he get, they get to make a decision, something strange happens. Now, I'm going to admit something to you. Verse 19, we're about to read this. I don't get verse 19. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you what I think it means. But I'm not sure why God inspired Matthew to add this in because it doesn't change anything. What her dream that we're about to read about didn't affect Pilate at all. Didn't change anything, and we never talk about it again. It's never discussed. It's never explained. This is the only time it's mentioned. Listen to this. 2719, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife, Pilate's wife, just in case you want to know, her name was Claudia. Trivia. Anyway. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with this righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Okay. Now, I'm honest when I don't know. I don't know why. Exactly why that was put in there. I mean, one thing that Ben brought up to me earlier was that maybe this was just his way of saying, Everybody saw how dumb this was but but, Israel. Maybe. But I thought of a couple of things. Now, these are just opinions, so don't email me and stuff, because it's so hard to ignore those. Not really. But anyway, 
Here's a couple ideas. Maybe Satan was influencing Pilate's wife to try to stop the crucifixion. And people go, what? I just kind of wonder if maybe Satan finally started putting two and two together and going, wait a, wait a minute. Wait a minute. If they go through with this crucifixion, he's going to defeat death, hell, and the grave, isn't he? That means billions of people will get to go to heaven by faith. I didn't think this through. I'm playing right into his hands. Let me see if I can stop this from happening. Now, do I know for a fact that's what happened? Nope, just a thought. Okay, here's another one. Maybe this is God's way of showing that he gives everybody second chances. He even gave Pilate a second chance here. He gave Pilate a chance to say, I know this is wrong, I shouldn't do it. And then his wife even says, you shouldn't do it, which most of us would go, okay. Right? And a lot of people have told me, well, he didn't have a choice. Because if he had not released him, there would have been a riot. Let me explain something to you. He was a Roman governor. He probably had a couple legions of Roman soldiers. Okay, thousands of basically ninjas. You know what I mean? You ever read about their training? They're like gladiators. Legit. These guys were, they were like the Green Berets. He had thousands of them. He could have said, you know what, this is, this is ridiculous. This is a false charge. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set him loose, and anybody that touches him dies. Understand? And guess what would have happened? They would have left him alone. Of course, we would all end up going to hell, so I'm glad that didn't happen. But anyway, that, I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I don't know why that was put in there, but she had a dream. It bugged her. She told him it didn't change anything. Okay? So don't email me. I can't prove that's why. I just always wondered. Okay. Doesn't tell us. Uh, so anyway, Pilate's wanting to let him go. But unknown to him, he's battling more than he knows because there are powerful people and powerful forces working against him and working against Jesus. Matthew 27, 20 says, But, chief priests, but the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to him, Tell, uh, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? There's that dig again. Right? I don't know if you realize, at that point, it really wasn't helping anything. Digging at him. He said, Jesus, who is called Christ. They all said what? Crucify him. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. Now, it's, this is so difficult for me, because, I mean, the crowd probably would have would have allowed Jesus to be released. They probably would have had they been left to their own devices. But think of how underhanded and evil these, these chief priests were. They're going among the crowd saying, don't you let him go. Don't you let him go. Yeah, Barabbas has done a few bad things, like murder. But this guy's claiming to be God, and, and God will bring discipline on us. Imagine they were using their influence to make sure that he didn't get a fair trial, to make sure that they chose to free Barabbas. This reveals how corrupt the Jewish leadership had become. I mean, think about this for a second. The very people who should have recognized and embraced Jesus as their Messiah were pushing to have him condemned. Think about that. Can you imagine what it's going to be like for them when they stand before God someday? I mean, these people knew more about the Word of God and more about the Messianic prophecies than anyone else. They knew them by heart. They had them memorized. 
right? But they had become so corrupt. They were corrupted by money. They were corrupted by power and, and just the desire to be important and prominent. That had corrupted them so bad that it didn't matter anymore. They wanted to put him to death. This is how corrupt they had become. Now, I'm sure this didn't happen overnight. I imagine when they first started, they had the right intentions. But slowly, little by little, temptation by temptation, they were pulled away from God. And this is where they are at. All right? Now, does that sound familiar? Right? I don't, you don't have to raise your hands. But I think sometimes the same things happen with believers. And I've seen it happen time and time again. So many believers start out on fire for God. How many people remember when you first believed? How many people? Do you remember, I mean, how excited and on fire you were for God? Do you remember that? How you just couldn't wait to go to church? You couldn't wait to read your Bible? You couldn't wait to listen to stuff on the radio? Remember that? Remember how exciting that was? You're like, I can't wait to go hear the praise team and see the eye candy. I mean, pastor... No, I'm just kidding. You just couldn't wait to get to church. You couldn't wait to hear the word of God. I remember one time sitting in a crowd. I'd just been saved. I didn't know anything about the Bible. And they started singing about the three Hebrew children in the, children in the fire. And I'm bawling. And I don't know that story. I don't know why I was bawling. But the spirit was just moving so powerfully over me because I was so on fire. We start off on fire. And then little by little, it doesn't happen overnight. Little by little, slowly, the enemy starts getting us to compromise, one compromise at a time, to pull us away from God, one thing at a time. You know, he uses things like pride, and I know no one in here has ever been guilty of pride, right? You know where you say, well, if they got one, I've got to have one. Anybody ever done that? Don't raise your hands, right? Or someone has something good happen in their life, you're going, well, that only happens because they're not very spiritual. Or you just want to say something because you're jealous, right? That crawls into your life. Or greed. I work on Sundays, that's triple time. Anybody ever get that temptation? Don't raise your hands. I don't want to think less of you than I already do. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Lust. You know lust isn't always about sex. Lust means desiring something. How many times have you desired something you shouldn't have or didn't need? Because everybody's telling you you should. You should have this. You need this. Right? This happens slowly and before long. We get so bitter and angry and tied up in pride. And I have, I have witnessed churches split over this stuff. I'm not joking. One time there was a church who remained nameless that split because they couldn't agree on what color the pews should be when they got their new pews. I'm not kidding. It became a big fight because then it became about pride. Well, I've been here 25 years. I should have a say in it. You've only been here eight years. You have no say in it. You're barely going to heaven. You know what I mean? You know what I would have done if I was the pastor? I would have gotten rid of every one of them, put lard buckets out and said, there, sit on those, maybe you remember why you're here. You know what I mean? But I'm not kidding you. Parted over that. I've seen churches split over music. Who got to play the guitar the most? Seriously? Who has the most power to vote? I've seen them split over that. The enemy is all over that. That is, that is the same thing that happened here, happening today. There are still people sitting in church who the enemy is always pointing out, what's, oh, the so-and-so doesn't like me. So-and-so wasn't there when I had surgery. So-and-so doesn't, teach, doesn't treat me like he treats other people. Pastor Chris didn't shake my hand today. He missed me. And you know what happens? Is we are so full of bitterness and anger that we just find ourselves drifting farther and farther away from God. I think that's probably the process that brought them to that point. 
And one day you just wake up and realize, man, my faith is a show. Because I'm not really as happy inside as I pretend like I am on the outside. And I think we've all been there a time or two. We're inside, we're angry, bitter, envious, something's going on, we're trying to work through. And when we see our Christian friends in public or at church, we're like, how are you doing? Bless you. And during worship, woo, you know, and then, but in here, we're not there. Right? That's the same thing that probably happened to them, slowly pulling them away until one day you realize, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I am so far from him, I can't even feel him anymore. You've got to be so cautious. We'll talk about that a little bit more. So finally, Pilate realizes that they're not going to change their mind. Guys, it's kind of like when your wife makes up her mind. Forget it. Right? Anybody ever have this discussion? Where do you want to eat? Wherever you want. Okay, I want here. No, not there. Right? They're not going to change their mind. Eat where they want to eat. I'm just kidding. No, but anyway, he knew they weren't going to change their mind. Matthew 27, 24. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. Again, this didn't exonerate him. He still did the wrong thing. Okay, now listen to this. It says, And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. This crowd, I'm going to say something that you might not like. But this crowd is, is like the perfect example of how religion can corrode and corrupt faith. It's the perfect example of that. Because, listen, their faith was in the promises of God. And for years they had waited on their Messiah to come. And they should have been reading every day and praying every day, Lord, let your will be done. Let him come and come quickly. That should have been their prayers every day. And if it was, when he came in doing everything that Jesus was prophesied to do, they would have said, there's our Messiah. And they would have believed and the kingdom would have started right then. But instead, what happened was they started at the beck and call of their leadership probably. They started focusing on the religion of Judaism more than the word of God. So much so that they didn't even recognize him. I mean, this was, this was the climax of their faith. And they didn't recognize him. Instead, they want him put to death. And this is certainly the result of religious leaders making faith about uh, making their religion about everything except God. That's what their religion was about, everything except God. And when I say that, I mean traditions and ceremonies and pageantry and, and bylaws and all that stuff. And that still happens today. Have you ever been there where church becomes about that stuff and less about Jesus? If you've ever been there, it's painful. I mean, it's really painful. Because I'm telling you, listen, when church becomes about what people are wearing, leave. When church starts to turn into how many times you stand up and sit down to be righteous, leave. When church starts to turn into what kind of music you listen to to be righteous, leave. Right? When it's about anything, who keeps the most rules, how often you do the, the sacraments, all these things that the enemy uses to distract us. He loves religion. The enemy loves religion. He loves it when we say, I'll never forget, I had a guy... That was livid with me. He came to church and he said, I could never go to church there. I like the message and I like the music. And I said, well, that makes sense. Explain that. He goes, I saw people wearing hats. I'm not real good at hiding what I think. I wish I were better at that. I'm just terrible at it. And I'm like, are you kidding? He's like, no, I saw a guy with a hat on. And I'm like, yeah, you probably should find another church. <laughs> 
And I know that sounds terrible, but I'm like, you know what? We got enough judges walking around. We don't need you here. Literally, it was a hat. Now everybody in here with the hat's going, mm. <laughs> Listen, there's nothing wrong with hats. Nothing. But see, that's getting involved in the religion and not faith. That's how religion corrodes faith. We're judging someone for what they wear, for what they listen to, for how much money they have. Listen, religion corrodes faith. So be careful not to get too comfortable with your religion. I've had people tell me before, I know I'm, I'm just not comfortable in church if we're not having communion and, you know, saying the Our Fathers and standing up and sitting down and saying the Apostles' Creed. Nothing wrong with any of those. But that can't be the definition of your faith. The definition of your faith has to be about you and him and how much you love him and how much he loves you and how much you share him with others. That's what your faith has to be about, not about what people wear to church. You know, I just it blows my mind. Listen, when we learn to just be silent and cultivate the relationship between us and the one who gave us eternal life, we'll be powerful again. You know, when believers learn that we don't come here to judge, to be looked highly upon, to be highly regarded, we come here to highly regard God and to learn how to be closer to him. That's why. That's what church should be about. That's what our faith should be about. We just need to learn to be silent and start to really focus on our relationship with God and start learning to trust him to be God. Listen, Jesus is where he is. Jesus was put on the cross at this moment by religion. That's what put him on the cross. He didn't violate any laws of God. He violated their religion in their eyes. And that's why he's here. Don't ever let that be you. I'm going to close here in a minute, but I want you to leave with this with this thought, listen, what is your faith about? When you think about your faith, what do you think about? Do you think about church? That's not what I want you thinking about. Do you think about music? Hey, that's cool. That's not what I want you thinking about. When you think about your faith, I want you to think about Jesus, who was silent and didn't defend himself to die innocently so that you could have eternal life. That's what our faith is about. In the moment it becomes about anything else, Time for a change. And we're going to pick up there next week. There's a lot more I want to jump into this week, so we'll pick up there. So if you would, please just bow your heads. We always like to give an invitation. And when I say invitation, I don't mean, you know, asking people to come down front. I don't do that. It's just I believe that the word of God moves on people, moves in people. It's amazing. Have you ever been sitting in church and you'd swear that that pastor wrote that sermon about you? You ever felt like that? You know what's even more weird? When you're the one preaching it and thinking, this guy wrote it about me. Listen, that's the word of God reaching out and touching you. And if you're that person who's not sure where they stand, listen, I'm nobody's judge. I just want to pray for you so every head is bowed. Just make eye contact with me and put your head right back down. Bless those people. I'm not going to chase you down. I'm not going to email you. Bless those people. Bless those people. I'm not going to point you out. I want to pray for you because I've been there. Bless those people. Bless those people. But listen, if God's speaking to you, there's a reason. Bless those people. If you're listening online or watching online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you too. But believers, listen, I always include us in on these prayers at the end, and here's why. We've been given a great responsibility and a great blessing. 
we're promised eternal life, and we're promised that we can share the words that gave us that eternal life with other people, and they can have it too. Let's always make the main thing the main thing. This is about Jesus. And the more we remember that, the more we'll see him move. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. Every week I say this, but I am amazed that you can love people like us. I know personally there's nothing I've done or am currently doing that deserves the grace and mercy you've shown me. But I'm thankful that you love us despite us. And God, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, Lord, I, I don't know what it is that's hindering them. I don't know what's holding them back. But I know that you silently went to that cross so that all they had to do was believe. It's not about who they are or what they've done. It's about what they can believe. And if they can believe that what you've done is enough to guarantee they'll have eternal life, I just want them to know you've promised that you'll give it to them. And if they make that decision, I pray they reach out to us or reach out to a good Christian friend or organization near them. Because we want them, God, to be strong and to grow with someone walking by their side. And God, we pray if there's believers here today who've allowed themselves to slowly be pulled away, one compromise at a time, let us not be too proud to admit that that's us if it's us so that we can repent of it and get right back in the center of your will God let us make you the most important thing because you are everything else is secondary let our faith be based on you and your grace God we'd ask that you'd go with us as we leave here and keep us safe if you don't return to take us home before we meet again we just pray that we would come together and give you all the praise honor and glory you're so worthy of at least one more time I just thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name.